Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here, and I have the privilege of walking us through our passage of Scripture tonight, one we'll be studying together. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to take them out now and turn them open to Mark chapter 10. We're in the middle of a journey through the Gospel of Mark, and it's been a fun ride so far, and we're slowly picking up steam. We've been in Mark for a while, uh, but, but we are making progress. Mark chapter 10, stepping into verse 17, uh, the passage our friend Crystal read for us a moment ago. As you guys are finding your way there, I'm going to say one more prayer for us, and then we will dive right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Jesus. Thank you for loving us so well. I pray that you would help us in, this, in these moments as we read your word, open up our minds to understanding them, stir our hearts to where this passage intersects with us so that we might be affected and transformed and mobilized as your people to live the life that you've called us to live as your disciples in the here and now. God, we thank you for the promises of the gospel, and, and we want to claim those now as we consider this text and as we consider perhaps some of the challenging aspects of it, all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're stepping into a story here in Mark chapter 10 that is on one hand, it, is, it can be very devastating. It's a very sad passage. But on the other hand, it's also a text, if we're able to listen to and respond to well, we're going to find it very exhilarating because of what it has to show us about who Jesus is and, and his promises towards us to uh, ultimately always outgive us in any endeavor and ultimately always outgive us in any act of obedience or any sacrifice or submission or surrender that we make as disciples who are following him. Uh, this is one of those passages, every time I read it, I'm reminded of an interview that Tom Brady shared with 60 Minutes. It's an interview that I've shared with you before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, Brady, of course, is now the four-time Super Bowl champion quarterback for the New England Patriots. Uh, he's wildly successful and he's wildly wealthy. He has a, a beautiful family. He's a healthy guy taking care of himself. He has the ambition of playing quarterback for the Patriots until he is 50 years old. Uh, this is the kind of guy who doesn't, well, he'll never touch a tomato because he fears inflammation. So that's the type of tedious detail he gives to his diet. Well, um, if you and I were to uh, paint a portrait of someone we would consider to be blessed or favored or valued in this world, Tom Brady's portrait would probably, we would have a hard time finding someone with a better resume than his. Uh, so back in 2005, he was given an interview to 60 Minutes journalist Steve Croft. And despite the fame, despite his career, despite his familial accomplishments, he, he told Croft in this interview that he still felt like something was lacking. These were the words that he shared. He said, you know, at that time, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goals, my dreams, my life. But me, I think, man, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. And then Croft then pressed Brady as to what the right answer was. And Brady said, well, what's the answer? I, I wish I knew. He said, you know, I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm still trying to find. It's kind of a surprising reply to the question. It's kind of a surprising interview. It's perhaps it's ones that, that catches uh, us off guards. But if we're just kind of take his perspective and we hold it in our minds as we step into the story of that's commonly referred to as the rich young ruler, the rich young man, you, you'll know that by first century 
standards, the gentleman in this passage and in this story is a lot like Tom Brady. He's identified as a wealthy, successful, and relatively good man. And there's a lot of continuity there. There's a lot of similarity there. But more importantly, this is the kind of guy who's a lot like you and I. He's a lot like many of us in this room. In fact, he's a lot like a lot of people in our city. He's one of these guys that we've probably met more than once as we've journeyed through uh, our, our space here called Seattle. And yet despite all of the evidence of divine blessing in his life, all the things he's got going for him, this is a guy that still feels like he's lacking. He still feels like there's a void. And so he comes to Jesus seeking to fill. And so when we meet him in verse 17, we find him unsettled. He's unsettled, he's disturbed, and, and I can't help but think that this guy is perhaps unsettled by what occurred in verses 13 through 16, the passage we looked at last week. Perhaps he witnessed Jesus welcoming and blessing children, and perhaps he heard Jesus say, uh, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Perhaps he heard those words and he scratched his head wondering, well, how can that be? You see, this guy was no doubt quite familiar with a child's status in the first century. He knows the things that we covered last week, that a kid had no discernible rights in the first century. He knows that a, a child had no discernible resources in the first century. He knows that children were socially insignificant until they reached uh, age 12. And yet he's standing back and he's seeing Jesus blessing these kids, bestowing God's favor upon them, and then... He hears Jesus make that shell-shocking statement in verse 15. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And that statement rocks him to the core because this rich young man, this rich young ruler was anything but a child. And so when he sees this man blessing kids and insisting that the kingdom of God belongs to those whom many considered as possessing no rights and had no resources, he's sent spiraling. He has an existential crisis. He's unsettled to the point where he can't let Jesus leave the vicinity before he approaches him and, and asks him the question that's nagging at him, saying, well, if that's true, if, if, you have to, if that's true, you have to become like a child to receive the kingdom of God, well, what does that mean for me? And so he's unsettled by this. Jesus and his disciples are about to leave. He runs to Jesus, and it says that he kneels before him. He's He's assuming a posture of humility. He's assuming a posture of sincerity. He's coming to Jesus, kneeling before him, and then asking him that all-important question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks this question, and it's an important question. It's a good question, but it's not really a great question. It's a good question because he's respecting Jesus when he calls him a good teacher. And it's a, a good question because it concerns eternal life. And none of us would ever discourage anyone from asking this kind of question. In fact, this is a good moment, you would think, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, just tell me, how, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? How, how can I step into salvation? How can I be a part of the kingdom of God? You, that's, that's a good question to ask. But the reason why I say it's not a great question is because the way that he asks it assumes that the answer to his question rests with him. 
What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? The solution to his own question, the accent is falling upon himself. It's, it's falling upon him. He's saying, what do I need to do to get in on this blessing? What do I need to do to get in on this favor? And that was surprising because if anyone who knew the rich young ruler, if anyone who knew this guy, they, they assumed he was a blessed person. They assumed he was already a part of the kingdom. They assumed he was already enjoying eternal life, which has more to do with quality than quantity of life. They assumed these things about him. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's a good question, but it's not a great question because the accent falls back upon himself. Anytime we're asking questions in our discipleship and the solution to our questions turns back on us, chances are we're asking good questions, but not great questions. And we need to discover the beauty of discipleship that always puts the accent. It always turns the tables towards Jesus and towards grace and towards God so that we find the solution and the answers to all of our questions ultimately turning back on God. And, and we'll discover this in this passage. So it's asking a good question, but it's not a great question. Another reason why I think it's a good question, but not a great question is because He's asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And you and I both know that inheritance is not something that receiving an inheritance has more to do with a person's identity than it does with their achievements. Receiving an inheritance has more to do with a person's identity, who they are, and what familial identity they share. That's where inheritance comes from. And so his question concerns identity. It takes the conversation there. So let's step back a moment and ask, who is this guy? What is his identity? Now, of course, we know that his name is not given, but a description of this guy is provided, a description that accounts for his identity. We, we know from this passage, as well as when you take this story in light of what Luke says about this story and some of the details Matthew includes, you discover that this, this was a young man. Luke points out that he was a young man. That has to do with his identity, kind of who he was. He wasn't a child, but he was a young man. Chances are he was in his late 20s, early 30s, and he's already having an existential crisis. I wonder if some of you have been there before. He's a young man, but not only is he a young man, we know that he is a rich man. Verse 22 would, re would refer to the fact that he uh, had great possessions. So he was a, a wealthy man. In fact, Luke's gospel would say this guy uh, owned a lot of property. He probably inherited his family business at some point in time. He probably inherited his family's real estate business. He had property. He was a ruler. And so he owned land, and that made him wealthy. That gave him great possessions. But then... When you consider how Jesus responds in this message, in this passage, we can say that he was a relatively good man. This wasn't a guy who you wouldn't want to hang with. This wasn't a guy that you'd want to shun. This isn't a guy that you want to be afraid of. He was a relatively good man. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. Right after he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that's why I say relatively good. Ultimately, no one is good except God alone. Oh, God alone. Then verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, honor your father and mother. And then the man responds in verse 20, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. 
He said, I've done that. At least I've, I've followed that on, in an external kind of way. I've never literally taken a knife and murdered someone. I've never uh, actually slept with someone who wasn't my wife. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't borne false witness. I haven't lied or taken a, um, taken the, a stand at a trial and borne false witness in that regard. I haven't defrauded anyone. I've honored my mom and my dad. I'm taking good care of, the, my, of our family business. It's, he was a relatively good Man, and, and then you look at verse 23, 21, and you discover that, yes, this was a young man, this was a rich man, this was a relatively good man, but you discover something about him that perhaps he did not know about himself until Jesus brought it to light. You see, Jesus has a tendency to see more in us than we are aware of. Jesus has a tendency of seeing the things in us that we hide from everybody else. This is why we must be very careful when it comes to sizing other people up and assuming other people are participating in the kingdom of God or that their goodness is good enough because we can't see the types of things that Jesus sees when he looks upon a person. Now, I don't know if that scares you. It shouldn't scare you. It should ultimately encourage you when you consider what Jesus, what Jesus says when he looks at this man. It says that he loved him. He looks at him and he sees things about this man that he's unaware of, but he still loves him. So Jesus isn't turned off by this guy's uh, sin, the, the one that's about to be brought to light. He, he's not turned off from that. He doesn't shy away from it. He looks at this man and he loves him. And because he loves him, he's willing in this conversation to shed a spotlight on the darkest part of his heart. The part of his heart that no one else sees. The part of his heart that he seemed oblivious to when he was referring to his relative goodness. The fact that he hadn't disobeyed the law in its external form. And so Jesus looks at him and he loves him. But then you listen to what he says. He says one of the most shocking statements. You'll read Jesus uh, in the Gospels. He says, well, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He sees the one thing this guy lacks and he goes after it. He sees the one thing this guy's heart is clinging to above all else and Jesus calls for it. He says, go sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll be free to come follow me. Then you're going to have treasure in heaven. Jesus looks at this man and he loves him. Yes, his identity was wrapped up in the fact that he's young, he's rich, he's relatively good. But what Jesus saw when he looked at him was an enslaved man. He saw a man whose heart was attached to so firmly to his possessions that his possessions stood in the way of him receiving eternal life. His hands were so full of his stuff, although Jesus was there to give him life, there was no room. He couldn't take it. His hands were already full. And so Jesus challenges him. He calls that out. Go, sell everything that you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. I want you to show love for your neighbors. I want you to show love for me in this way. I want you to follow me. But then you look at verse 22 and it says, well, this, is, this may be the saddest verse in all of the gospel of Mark. It's one of the saddest moments in this gospel. 
in response to that call, in response to that command from Jesus, it says that he was disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This was an enslaved man. And so we just kind of think about that and we step back. And one of the things I'd like for us to consider this evening is how our identity and our idolatry is often woven together. Our identity and our idolatry is often woven together. And that's a dangerous thing because anytime we take our identity and we place it in the things of this world that we love, cherish, cling to, willing to uh, not give up for the sake of Christ, anything that happens, we, we wrap our identity up in this idol and then all of a sudden the fate of our idol becomes the fate of our identity. And that's a dangerous way to live. That's a dangerous way to navigate the waters of this world. There's a guy by the name of Ernest Becker who uses the analogy of an amoeba when he's talking about this, this desire for identity, this, this sense of self that people have. And he, he says, you know, an amoeba, that one-celled organism you learned about in high school science class, he said an amoeba has this unique ability to extend its cell wall to surround and enclose a foreign body. And he says, when that happens, the amoeba becomes as vulnerable as the fate of that object. Our identity and our idolatry are often woven together. And when that happens, our identity, our sense of self will become as vulnerable as the object that we've attached it to. And so you consider this guy's example, the rich young ruler, and you consider what Jesus says about the dangers of doing that with money and wealth, and it'll, it'll strike a, a warning in you. This, I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what Jesus says there about the, the fate of wealth or the fate of money, the danger of wrapping your identity up in your stuff. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth that can be destroyed in these ways, that can be taken away in these ways. He says instead, but to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the warning Jesus gives to a guy like we find in this story. That's the warning Jesus gives to people like us living in a relatively prosperous city where ambition is important and, and career is desired, where wealth is needed just to exist in this city. He, he throws out this warning. Don't wrap your identity up in your stuff. Don't tie it to that idol because you know that that stuff can be taken from you. You know that that stuff will is fragile. It will forsake you. It can fail and fall. And when it does, if your identity is wrapped up in it, your identity will crumble and fall as well. The fate of your identity is wrapped up in the fate of your idol or the fate of whatever God you cling to. So we want to consider his identity and the relationship between that and his idolatry. And as we do so, let me just ask you the question. When it 
comes to the idea of idolatry, just to kind of span back from this text for a moment, Jesus, of course, is dealing specifically with wealth and possessions because that's what was prominent in his heart, but there may be something different in yours. You may not tend to wrap your identity into the idol of possessions or wealth or money. You may find a relationship. You may find some other status. You may find some other aspect of the created order to tie yourself to and and I want to ask you, why do you think you do that? An idol is essentially a functional savior. It is a little g God. It is something that we seek to build our identities upon and draw value from. And why do you think we, we do that? Why do you think we need those types of gods? Why do you think idolatry is an aspect of the human condition that every human heart struggles with? And I assure you, every human heart struggles with it. This doesn't have anything to do with totem poles and statues and those types of things. This has to do with the ethos and the spirit of your heart, the affections of your, of your soul, the, the prospect and the power of your identity. And so you ask the question, what is it that we look to from these idols? And we might ask it this way, what do we want from a God? What do we want from a God? Well, on one hand, I think we all want a sense of salvation. What do we want from a God? Well, we want salvation. We want to know that, that our life is going to last. We, we, even if it's just tied to something that will be here when we're gone, we, we want that to last, a sense of salvation. So we want a God that can provide us with that. We, we want a God that can give us a sense of security. We cling to idols because we want security. And if money is your God, then... Money can certainly provide you with a sense of security. If money is your God, it can help you feel safe in this world. We also want it to give us a sense of significance. We want a sense of value. And again, if money is that, if possessions is that, then your value will be tied to your bank account and your successes and your achievements. We want that type of significance. But, and as we're seeking salvation and security and significance from these idols, from these, God, from these gods in this world, when we do that, we inevitably want to serve them. And again, you just take the example of possessions and money and wealth. You take that. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a person sacrifice time, sacrifice relationships, sacrifice things that truly matter for the sake of maintaining a certain bottom line. And that idol begins to choke people, begins to snuff out life and joy. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he, he would say, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And he's offering these warnings all throughout the gospel. And he gives this example in this conversation with the rich young ruler as a, as a loving warning to us because ultimately we go as our gods go. We go as our gods go. And when our idols fell us, everything falls apart. If your idol is money, when you lose your money, you lose your sense of salvation, security, and significance. If your idol is a relationship and you lose that relationship, you lose that sense of salvation, security, and significance. We go as our gods go. One of the most, 
One of, the, one of the images in my mind that has stuck with me the most over the years has to do with my senior year in high school. I, I played baseball growing up, and I loved baseball. gave myself to baseball for so long. It was my passion. It was my desire. I, I wanted to go to college and play ball, which by God's grace I was able to do. It was a lot of fun, but I wasn't really the guy who was expected to go play college ball. There was another guy on our team named Lee Patton who was expected to go. He was groomed from a very young age to play college ball. I mean, he and his dad did all the did all the things necessary to groom him and to develop his skills so that he could go play college ball. And he was a good ball player. But our senior year, uh, Lee, his position and his identity on our baseball team was threatened by a guy named Kyle Williams. The problem with that is that Lee was a senior, Kyle was a freshman, Kyle was a genetic freak. Kyle was... You know, in, as a freshman, 6'3", 225 pounds, he's still playing defensive end for the uh, Buffalo Bills in the NFL. That's the kind of athlete we're talking about. And when he joined the team, he took Lee's position. Coach had no choice but to play Kyle because Kyle was phenomenal. And when that happened, when Lee lost his starting job on the baseball team, it, that crushed his goal of playing in college. It, it threw his life off rail, off the rails, so much so that when it happened and he lost his idol, his identity went with it and his life fell apart. His life crumbled. He began drinking heavily, experimenting with some pretty intense drugs, trying to find a sense of salvation, security, and significance through the feelings that those things would provide him in order so that he might be able to escape his real feelings of despair and discouragement of having lost his idol, having lost his identity, and his life just literally fell apart. You see, ultimately, you and I will go as our gods go. Whatever we are building our identities upon, when those foundations, when those things are taken from us, our idols, our identity will crumble. And so the question becomes, then, in whom are you going to place your identity and from whom are you going to draw your sense of salvation and significance and security? Whom are you going to serve in this world? And the point of this passage, as you continue journeying on and you look at verse 23, is, is to show us a picture of the, the superior Savior. Show us a picture of how Jesus is more than enough to do all things for us. Jesus is more than enough to give us salvation, security, and significance. He's worthy of our service. You see this in this funny exchange that Jesus gets into beginning of verse 23. It says, and Jesus then looked around as his disciples after the rich young ruler left away and he was sad. He then asks his disciples, man, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard because they can look to their wealth to provide them with resources. They can look to their achievements and provide them with a sense of right or entitlement saying, well, look what I did in this world. Surely I'll be cool in the next. And so he's, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Why? Because they're going to be dependent upon their wealth. Then in verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. They were dumbfounded. But Jesus then said to them again, children, notice that word, children. Remember what he said earlier, blessed, let the little children come unto me. He refers to his disciples as children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier. And then he throws out this illustration for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever tried to put a camel through an eye of a needle, but it's impossible. (laughs) And that's the point of the illustration. 
Sometimes preachers will take this verse and they'll try to draw some historical reference to some fictional gate in Jerusalem that, well, the camel could fit through. It just had to get on its knees and kind of work its way. It was, it's just hard to do, but it's not impossible. And if you ever hear someone say that, it's a fiction. It doesn't, that, that gate doesn't exist. To say that the camel, uh, Jesus' point is that it's impossible to take a big hairy camel and shove it through a teeny tiny eye of a needle. It's just, you can't do it. And that's the point. The point is, your wealth cannot get you into the kingdom. The point is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. That's the point. We must become like children. We must become like kids. We must absolve ourselves of any sense of entitlement. We must recognize that we have no resources within us to enter the kingdom of God with. So what do we do? Well, we come to Jesus with empty hands and we let him give it to us. We let him supply it for us. We let his grace come upon us. And so you begin to see this all hinted at in this exchange with not only the rich young ruler, but with his disciples afterwards. And and we're reminded of how in Jesus, this superior Savior, we're reminded by the fact that Jesus desires disciples, not mercenaries. Jesus desires disciples, not mercenaries. And here's what I mean by that. A mercenary is someone who wants something simply for personal gain, but not simply because they love whatever it is they're doing. A mercenary is someone who gives their life to a cause, gives their life to a king, gives their life to some some movement because of what they can personally gain from it, but not because their heart is in it. And Jesus is saying, this is why the rich young man's obedience wasn't good enough. Yeah, he obeyed the external form of the law, but there was still a heart that was disengaged and unwillingness to rely upon the goodness of God in Jesus and to trust him. And so he reminds us that he wants disciples. He doesn't want mercenaries. In other words, Jesus wants more than your obedience. Jesus wants your faith. He wants your trust. And if you and I believe that God is good, which is what the rich young ruler originally affirmed, or what Jesus affirmed to him, only God is good. If we believe only God is good, then that should engage our faith, engage our hearts to the point where we're willing to trust him with whatever it is he demands of us. Jesus desires disciples, not mercenaries. He desires the types of people who come to him like children and say, Jesus, whatever you want, I'll give to you. Whatever I need to surrender, I will turn over. Whatever submission I need to assume, I'm going to do it because I want you. That A disciple wants Jesus mercenaries want Jesus's stuff. A mercenary wants heaven, even if Jesus isn't there. A disciple wants Jesus, and that's it. This is why Jesus desires disciples, not mercenaries. Someone who comes to Jesus wanting Jesus, willing to give anything to Jesus, even if it is that which our heart has been clinging to for so long. So let me ask you, what is the one thing you are most tempted to hold back from Jesus? Is it a relationship? Is it an ambition? Is, it a, is, it, is there anything that is hindering you from becoming a disciple and trusting, with, trusting Jesus with? You see, Jesus desires disciples, not mercenaries. But then when you go on and you... You begin to move into the conversation and you see how the disciples respond in verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and they said to them, well, then who can be saved? If that's true, then who, who can do it? 
And Jesus looked at them and listen to what he says. This is where this, this passage becomes exhilarating. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. For man, it is impossible with, for man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What he is saying here and what we learn when we just kind of step back and we survey the scene of the gospel and we understand how the New Testament communicates the gospel and all that Jesus did for us, we begin to see how there was more than one rich young ruler in this passage. There was one rich young ruler that Jesus is talking to. There was one rich young ruler that left away sad in this moment, but there was another rich young ruler who was present. There was another one who had everything. There was another one who responded differently from how this man responded. You have a rich young ruler in the person of Jesus. And when you consider what Jesus did for us, all of a sudden we realize how he deserves to replace all of our idols. He deserves to replace them. Why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 would tell us this. It would tell us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, many become rich. You see, where the rich young ruler failed in this passage, refusing to sell everything and give to the poor, Jesus did gladly. He sold everything and gave it to the poor. He did what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2 when he tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus sold everything to make many of us rich. He sold everything so that you and I could be brought into the kingdom of God. He gave up everything so that he could give us everything. This is what goes down in the gospel. And when you consider what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he endured for us, you will recognize how he deserves to replace every one of your idols. He deserves to replace your idols because Jesus loves you and does things for you that your idols never can. The sense of salvation, security, and significance that your idols provide you with, Jesus eclipses. Your infatuation with your idols and the amount of time and energy you give to them, you are pouring far more out for your idols and your idols are not pouring really anything out for you. But Jesus, if he is this, the true rich young ruler, if he is the one who deserves to replace our idols, giving up, every, selling everything so that he might give us everything, giving to the poor, making us rich in God, then he deserves to replace our idols. And so Peter hears this. He hears this dynamic. He hears about this emphasis on how all things are possible with God because he's going to do for us what nobody else can do for us. And then Peter begins to say to him, well, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Peter, he's still evolving in his discipleship. He's still got a lot to learn. There's a lot of rough edges in Peter's life, just like there's a lot of rough edges in our life. And so even in that statement, there's a moment where Peter is kind of doing like the rich young ruler where he's saying something that would turn the table back upon himself. Look at what I've done. Look at the sacrifices I've made. Look at what I've given up to follow you. Look at we as the disciples. So he's still trying to turn everything back upon himself, but Jesus doesn't let him do that. 
He doesn't do it very long before Jesus reminds him how he will always give more than we ever give up. This is what Jesus assures him of in verse 29. He just kind of stops Peter in his tracks and he says, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, sure, with hardships, sure, with struggles, sure, but you're going to get all of this and in the age to come, you're also going to get eternal life. And then he says, but many who are first will be last. And the last, first, Jesus always gives more than we give up. And as we grow as disciples, we begin to rest in that reality. We begin to see that anything that Jesus ultimately calls us to surrender to him, in the end, it will prove to be as though it was no sacrifice at all. Because Jesus always gives more than we give up. And I assure you that whatever you're clinging to right now, that one thing that you lack, that one thing that is hindering you from following Jesus, from attaching yourself to him, I assure you, when you give it up, when you surrender, when you refuse to walk away disheartened and sorrowful because you're so possessed by whatever that idol is, when you get to the point where you surrender it, when you give it up and you attach yourself to Jesus, you're going to grow in such a way that at the end of your days, you're going to look back on your life and say, you know, I, I, I never really gave up anything. The joy that I have in Jesus, the all that Jesus has given me in the community of faith called the church, where, which is what I think the reference is here in this passage of all these relationships and everything there. He's saying everything that I have from Jesus far eclipses anything I gave up in my desire to follow Jesus. Jesus always gives us more than we give up. I love how this passage ends because it reminds us of one of the things that I really want to instill within our church. It reminds us that when we submit our lives to Jesus, when we begin to surrender ourselves to him, when we begin to build our identities upon him, it reminds us that we're not just our own mountain peaks off in the distance doing our thing, trying to figure out what it means to build our identities upon Christ. He's saying, look, yeah, Peter, you've given all those things up, but I'm going to guarantee you hundredfold more relationships, sisters and brothers and mothers. And you're going to step into a community, a family, a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to show up in your life now in the church. He's telling us that the church is what, what it does in our lives is it provides us with a spiritual family in which we can grow as disciples of Jesus. You know, sometimes we say in our discipleship, the church is a lot like family, and we try to draw that analogy, but what Jesus is instilling in this moment is that the church is family. And if there's something I want you to consider as it relates to what we hope Jesus builds among us in our relationships, it is to instill this perspective that the church isn't like a family. The Hallows Church isn't like my family. The Hallows Church is my family. That God has done something to bind me with other people in Christ and, and, and binding me with them no matter what I bump up against in this world, whether it's persecutions or sufferings or trials or struggles, no matter what bumps up against me, I am buffered by this community. I am buffered in the family of faith and I know that by God's grace, I can endure whatever comes my way. That the internal life that Jesus gives me, I can enjoy now and forever. 
So the church isn't simply like family. The church is family. And you and I need to press into that reality. Because one of the ways that Jesus always gives us more than we give up is by putting us, putting us in relationships with other people who are following the same Savior and growing together in that direction. So would you pray with me in that direction? Uh, Father, I come before you this evening and I just ask that you would... Father, I ask first that you would expose any hidden idols in our hearts that perhaps we've hidden from, we've tried to hide from you and perhaps we've certainly hidden from one another. Jesus, would you expose those? Would you deliver us from those? For we know that those idols are fragile and frail, that they will forsake us and fail us. And so we ask, Jesus, for your loving rebuke, for your loving exposure so that we might surrender whatever those things are to you. And I pray that you would assure us by your grace that you are building new identities within us. And I pray as we continue following the Savior, I pray that we would find him to be superior. I pray that the salvation he gives, the security he provides, the significant he endows us with, and whatever service we give to him, I pray that that would reign supreme in our affections and our attention. I pray that nothing would crowd it out. And I pray that as we press into this dynamic, I pray that we would do so together. So Lord, would you please make the Hallows Church family? I pray that the reality of what the church is in the world now, I pray that it would come to bear in this place and amongst all of us. God, make us a family in Jesus' name. Amen.